Hallelujah. 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 I think only maybe a couple of you are aware of, so it's worth repeating. It's a good foundation for what we're going to talk about. Years ago, I pastored a Bible church. Uh, in my three Messianic days, it was a Sunday church, and I can still remember the day. It was Sunday, June 30th, 1996. A very hot day in the Detroit area high of 96 degrees and sunny. Very, very hot. And I closed the worship service at noon, and just after closing the service, in the door walked an Orthodox Jewish rabbi in his full regalia. And the, the heavy woolen cloak and, and everything. And he had sweat just streaming off of him so he obviously had been sitting in his car for an indeterminate amount of time waiting for the service to come to an end. And uh, the, the reason he had come isn't the subject of my message, but just to, to mention it, he came asking that we would deed to their local Jewish minion or synagogue part of our property at the back by the Torah, by the uh, cell phone pole, of course, free of charge. They wanted to deed this property over to them. And they were going to put up a six-foot painted totem pole. That was his word for it. And the reason for it was that it was going to be placed between the, the cell phone pole and the brick wall because there was two feet of space and they wanted to establish a, a, a Arab, what they call Arab, E-R-U-V or E-R-U-B-H, uh, around the city. And there could only be up to one foot of a break in the line around the city. And there was two feet. So a, a foot of air, 12 inches of dead space, was preventing their Arab from being operative. And what this era does is, because Judaism is so oppressive in its rules and regulations, it's legalism that goes far beyond the scriptures. The, the people look for a way out from under all the weight of all of this legalism. And so they had devised this idea that if they put a string around the neighborhood, an unbroken string, that the city becomes an Arab and God's law, God's Torah, is inoperable. Without this, he said, a cripple could not leave his home on the Sabbath day with a walker because that's picking up sticks. He'd be trapped in his home. And a woman in their minion could not take her baby out in a stroller because 
pushing a stroller and picking up sticks and so she'd be trapped in her home and so he wanted us to not just allow him to put this but he was insisting we had to deed over free of charge of course a portion of the back of our property well, I brought before our board and of course the board said no and right after that we started getting a lot of attacks in the local paper that were anti-Semitic and hateful and blah 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 uh, they don't get their way, they're mean. They're mean. You, you need to know that. At any rate, that seems to have blown over. That was years ago. But at any rate, while the rabbi was there, I sat down with him and I said to him, Why do you not accept Yeshua as the Messiah when he's fulfilled over a hundred Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah? And he looked at me with kind of a devious smile on his face and he said, Well, you must admit, he said, while wagging his finger in my face, you must admit that the Old Testament prophecy says that Messiah would come as a conquering David, the Lion of Judah, to conquer his enemies. And you must admit that Jesus didn't do that. He died on a cross and, and was a failure. And, uh, and on and on he went. And uh, so the, the next day, I went to work and called my staff together. I was a corporate controller and manufacturing company, and I had six people in the office working for me, and I called them together for a month, Monday morning meeting. I told them what had happened. I want to see their response. I said, what would you have said to the rabbi when he said, Jesus didn't fulfill the prophecy of the coming Messiah because he died on a cross instead of being a conquering David. And they all looked at me kind of sorrowful and said, some of them said, oh, he's got a good point there. Maybe Jesus didn't fulfill the prophecies of the coming Messiah. It was very sad to hear this, and these people in the office ran the gamut of all the major denominations. There was a Catholic, a Baptist, even a Seventh-day Adventist, Methodist, all the major denominations. Not a one of them knew how to answer the rabbi's question. Well, the fact is that Judaism is taught, and I'm sure this rabbi is well aware of the fact, that there are disparate prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. In some prophecies, yes, he came as a, he was to come the conquering Lion of Judah, conquering David, and others, he would be the suffering servant, who would die for the sins of the people. And the Jews rationalized this or reconciled this by saying, well, there must be two messiahs. Two different messiahs. One is Messiah in Joseph, and the other is Messiah in Ben Judah. And in an article on the biblical Messiah, the Jewish Encyclopedia, in volume 1, page 508, says, For the better understanding of the messianic pictures and apocalyptic literature, it is important to point out that, although frequently interlaced, Two distinct sets of ideas may be traced, and the Messiah presents a correspondingly double character. 
And this double character corresponds precisely to the two comings of Messiah, his first and second coming. And it also corresponds exactly and precisely in Jewish theology to the two houses of Israel, ten tribes Joseph and two tribes house of Judah, which they have always taught are two separate peoples in the world today. Jews are not all of Israel. The Jewish encyclopedia goes on to state, a part of the ten tribes will be found among those who will gather about Messiah ben David's standard. Notice that the Jewish encyclopedia indicates that there would only be one of the houses that would accept the Messiah, <laughs> not, not both of them. Jewish scholars have long understood, as I said, that the two houses of Israel were separate peoples. And they therefore assumed that this would be the basis of two separate messiahs. First, the Messiah Ben Joseph, and you may recall that the patriarch Joseph was ill-treated, his life threatened, and his cloak torn and stained with blood in Genesis 37, which was a foretype of Messiah's own sacrifice for sin. We read this in Genesis 37, beginning at verse 31. And they took Joseph's coat and killed the kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. And evil beasts have devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. Well, Jewish theology also said that there would be a second Messiah. The rabbis called Messiah Ben Judah, who would come in the likeness of a conquering King David. Jewish scholars expected two messiahs. They didn't realize there would only be one messiah and two separate comings. And we see the two separate comings in the Old Testament scriptures. Messiah Ben Joseph imagery is found in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, we, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of Elohim, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and the sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Now secondly, prophecies of Messiah coming as a conquering line of Judah, conquering David. Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, Yahuwah will come with fire and with chariots like a whirlwind and render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword 
will Yahuwah flee with all flesh. And the slain of Yahuwah shall be many, for I know their works and their thoughts that shall come. Then I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. The Jewish Encyclopedia notes on this, in uh, Book 8, page 507, Israel is the servant of God, through whom the regeneration of mankind will be accomplished, who will spread the true religion among all nations, convert all men into willing servants of God, and lead all tongues to confess Him. Isaiah 45, 23, unquote. I find it interesting the Jewish Encyclopedia does not do this G-D business that you see in some of the Jewish writings. They have the OD uh, in throughout the Encyclopedia. But is what the Encyclopedia says true of the Jewish people? Have they done this? Have they brought and converted all nations, converted all men to being willing servants of God? Encyclopedia admits it has not been fulfilled among the Jewish people, saying, quote, naturally, not the actual Israel of the present is meant, but the ideal Israel of the future risen to spiritual heights in consequence of the wonderful deliverance of God, unquote. Book 8507. Why would they claim it is natural that Bible prophecy has not been fulfilled? Of course it has been fulfilled, but not in the Jewish people, obviously. The Jewish Encyclopedia quoted Isaiah 45, 23, which I'll quote in the Amplified Version. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And then gives references Romans 14, 11, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, and Hebrews 6, 13. Now this is a future millennial prophecy related to Messiah's coming kingdom. It has not been fulfilled in this church age because we're not in the millennial kingdom age. The Jewish Encyclopedia, volume 1683, tells us that Rome would persecute Israel at the end of which time Messiah Ben David will appear. Then the dead will arise and the Israelites dispersed over all lands will be gathered into Jerusalem. Also the ten tribes, together with the descendants of Moses, meaning Judah, will return, enveloped in clouds, and as they march, the earth will be transformed before them into paradise." Unquote. So according to Jewish theologians, the ten tribes will not return, and the two tribes will not be reunited until Messiah appears at the end of the church age to set up his millennial kingdom. Now, how were Christians misled into thinking that this church age that we're now in is the millennial kingdom of bliss, which began at Yeshua's first coming? Well, it was related to the political environment. So much of theology is related to current politics. It's related to the political environment. In the Middle Ages, Christianity spread unhindered, influencing church teaching. And this is well explained in the book, The Bible and Islam, by an interesting book by Dr. Henry Preserve Smith, part of the Eli Lectures for 1897. He has this to say. In the seventh century of our era, Christianity seemed triumphant over its enemies in the Eastern Empire, 
paganism was destroyed, the heresies had been overcome, the faith had received its full definition in what was supposed to be the final creed. The bishops and monks, at least, might have been justified in supposing that the kingdom of God was already established." Unquote. So into this confident political environment of the early Middle Ages, just before the rise of Islam changed all of that, <laughs> rose the Roman Catholic monk Augustine of Hippo, who lived 354 to 430 AD. And he taught that the glorious era of the millennium had already arrived with the first coming of Messiah, and the church age, he stated, fulfilled all the prophecies of Messiah's reign on earth. And Augustine, usually called St. Augustine, especially by the Catholics, strongly shaped Christian thought and doctrines for centuries, and not just in the Roman Catholic Church. Here was the birth of what is called amillennialism. In Greek, an A before a word makes it a negative. Amillennialism means no future millennium. In other words, they believe that this church age is itself the prophesied millennial reign of Messiah. This belief is sometimes called Jesus' kingdom now theology. To the contrary, many scripture prophecies make it clear we are not in the millennial kingdom now. So let's look at a couple of messianic prophecies that went unfulfilled at Messiah's first coming. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When Messiah shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not Elohim, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Yeshua. In no way did this take place when Yeshua arrived as a little babe in Bethlehem. The book of Thessalonians is dated to approximately 50 A.D., long after Messiah's first coming. So it can only be fulfilled in a future second coming. Similarly, in the Old Testament, we read a wonderful prophecy in Isaiah 2, beginning at verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days, which is the period between the first and second coming of Messiah, popularly known as the church age, that the mountain of Yahuwah's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many nations shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of Yahuwah, to the house of the Elohim of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah, and the word of Yahuwah from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. So has this been fulfilled yet? Do we have peace on earth? Have the instruments of war vanished? Why not? Because Yeshua's kingdom is not present now. We see this also in Isaiah 66, in a passage dealing with final judgment and the glory of Yahuwah. In verse 15, we read, For behold, Yahuwah will come with fire, and with his chariots like a whirlwind, who renders anger with fury, 
as rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword shall Yahuwah bleed with all flesh. And the slain of Yahuwah shall be many. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the garden behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, say Yahuwah. For I know their works and their thoughts that shall come, they will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith Yahuwah, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, or new month to another, and from one Shabbat to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith Yahuwah. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For the worm shall not die, neither shall the fire be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrent to all flesh. And we read in Daniel 7, beginning verse 9, about the reign of the Ancient of Days. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. And then we read about the Son of Man being given dominion. Verse 13, I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came in the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So he is given his kingdom at the time of his second coming. And then we read in verse 21, I behold, and the same Lord made war with the saints that prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came the saints possessed the kingdom. Down to verse 27, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey them. And there we have the coming millennial kingdom. We read about Yeshua's ascension in the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. When they were therefore come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? The amillennialists say, yes, the kingdom is now established. But what did Yeshua say? Verse 7, he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. So amillennialists seem to disagree with Yeshua on that. They think they do know the time the kingdom was established, that it was at Christ's first coming, Christ's first coming. Verse 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to uttermost part of the earth. And he spoke of these things. While they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly to heaven, as he went up, 
Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Yeshua, which is taken from you up into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you see him go into heaven. So this does not at all fit the first coming of Messiah as a babe in a manger. It does fit a physical second coming of Messiah to earth is conquering David, the Lion of Judah, phase of his second coming. Now, many of the ministers evade scripture by negating literal truth. For example, a Christian minister once said to me, quote, Jesus has already come back in my heart. What need do I have for a physical second coming, unquote. It's a true story. He's already come back in my heart. I don't have any need for a second coming. Forget about all that. Well, spiritual interpretations are important, but they can be misused, just as literal interpretations can. And they can be misused, in effect, claiming that the text doesn't really mean what it clearly and literally says, in an effort to avoid facing facts. In proper biblical use, a spiritual interpretation is actually usually the addition of a parallel moral lesson in biblical events, not a substitute to negate a literal meaning. The popular idea of a spiritual Israel can be used as a negation of any physical Israel at all, when in truth, Yah's people are composed of both a physical believing Israel and a spiritual Israel composed of believers out of all nations, not just one or the other, as many churches seem to think. Similarly, the idea of a spiritual kingdom of Elohim, limited to our hearts, is used to totally negate a literal physical millennial reign of Messiah on earth. Now here's an important question. Did first century believers refer to Yeshua as king? We read in Acts 17, verse 5, The Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city in uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are coming hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Yeshua. Now the believer's Bible commentary says, It was, to say the least, a strange thing for Jews to be so zealous in safeguarding the government of Caesar, <laughs> because they had little or no love for the Roman Empire. That is Jewish theology. Uh, Rome and Italy is Edom. <laughs> and that's even gotten into some of the fundamentalist teaching that, that uh, Rome or Italy or the Catholic Church is Edom, because they get that from propaganda from the Jews. Uh, so, doubtless, uh, doubtless they had heard Paul proclaim the second coming of Yeshua to reign as king over all the earth. But this did not pose an immediate threat to Caesar, since Yeshua would not return to reign until Israel had repented nationally. 
Dr. Adam Clark, says the truth is that the early believers never once insinuated that his kingdom was of this present world. The reverse they always maintained, unquote. Yet a hallmark of amillennialist kingdom now teaching is that Yeshua's kingdom is the current church age, an unmistakably unbiblical claim. In my previous talk, I delved deeper into the Gospel of John 18, verse 36, where Yeshua said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom now not from hence. Unquote. Now it isn't, but it will be at his second coming. For we read in Revelation 19, 16, and we have, and he had on his vesture, on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, yes, Yeshua will be king over all the earth when he returns. Let's look at one more representative scripture passage, the visit of the wise men to baby Jesus, baby Yeshua. Matthew 2, verse 1 says, Now when Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. Now there are at least two separate distinct issues involved here. Firstly, the reference to King Jesus here is what we may call a prolepsis. P-R-O-L-E-P-S-I-S. Prolepsis. It is a Greek word meaning a preconception. The representative of a thing as existing before it actually does. As in, uh, you watch some of the old cowboys in the westerns and they'll say he was a dead man when he entered. It is a prolepsis to tell you what's going to happen. The early believers, like the Parthian Hebrew wise men, eagerly looked to what they hoped would be the soon coming of their king. They were more than ready to see him crowned king, just as we are today. Perhaps today, this was the uh, slogan of the late Jack Van Impey, repeated over and over on his TV show. It was a prolepsis, a preconception of Messiah's forthcoming physical earthly reign, not a statement that he was already presently ruling right then as a babe in Bethlehem. Secondly, although the early believers had a great yearning, for the soon coming of Messiah's return, just as we do today, they firmly and unquestionably believed in a literal physical return of Messiah to set up his millennial kingdom. First century Christians were not amillennialists. They most certainly did not believe that his physical earthly reign had already begun, nor that it would be a spiritual kingdom only in their hearts. It will be a spiritual kingdom, but it will be a literal kingdom too. Next let's talk about briefly the reign of the Holy Spirit in this present church age while King Yeshua is in heaven. The earthly reign of the Son of Elohim is preceded by the spiritual reign of the Holy Spirit now in the present church age. Messiah told us over and over he'd be gone to heaven with the Father, absent from the earth during this church age. John 14, 16 says, I will pray the Father, he shall give you another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth, which proceeds from the Father, 
he shall testify of me. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So we have the Holy Spirit reigning in our hearts today in the absence of the physical presence of Yeshua. Did Yeshua depart? Is he presently gone away to the Father? If he did not depart, we would not have the Holy Spirit. Which is the clear teaching in John 16 7. So while the Holy Spirit reigns today, Yeshua's kingdom reign has not yet begun. He's not yet been installed in the kingdom on earth. In fact, during his absence, the reign of the Holy Spirit is present on earth now for over two millennia. Let me explain more fully in my talk on the everlasting kingdom, which is on the first page of the Medgeshin website. And one other thing to talk about, a wonderful parable that is a prophetic outline of the church age and the second coming. The parable of the ten minus in Luke 19, beginning in verse 11, and I'll read it from the complete Jewish Bible. While they're listening to this, Yeshua went on to tell a parable because he was near Yerushalayim, and the people supposed, yes, they had a fervent wish even today, they supposed that the kingdom of Elohim was about to appear at any moment, and of course it hasn't appeared yet during this church age. Verse 12, Therefore he said a nobleman went to a country far away to have himself crowned king and then return. So Yeshua's ascension to heaven, future second coming, is discussed there. Verse 13, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten manim, or minas. A mana is about three months' wages. And said to them, Do business with this while I am away. But his countrymen hated him, and they sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to rule over us. <laughs> and there's the Jewish rejection of Yeshua. Verse 15, However, he returned, having been made king, and sent for the servants to whom he had given the money to find out what each one had written on his business dealing. So the second coming appears right before Judgment Day, and we are to be about our Father's business. We are going to do his business dealings while he's, while he's gone. Not just to sit in our rocker waiting for Yeshua's return. Verse 10, For it must all appear before Messiah's court of judgment, where everyone will receive the good or bad consequences of what he did while he was in the body. So we are not judged only for our head knowledge, but for our works and obedience to Yah's commandments. Luke 19.27 However, as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to be their king, bring them here and execute them in my presence. And I will singe your ears by reading it, <laughs> but if you want to uh, go online, and read the uh, easy read version of this verse. <laughs> uh, it is quite strong. Quite strong. Doesn't, it isn't sugar-coated at all. Uh, so I won't, with children present, <laughs> read out of that version. 
but it is really uh, quite quite a translation, and I'm sure it, it's quite accurate in the meaning. In Revelation 20, verse 15, we read, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was hurled into the lake of fire. So, you know, it says in Luke 19, 27 about the terrible judgment and about the wicked being killed in Yeshua's presence. Paul tells us in Revelation 20, verse 15, they'll be hurled into the lake of fire. And Luke 19 continues with a prophecy of Messiah's triumphal entry in Luke 19, verses 28 to 44, symbolizing the second coming. Luke 19, 28, after saying this, Yeshua went on and began the ascent, the ascent to Jerusalem. And as he approached Beth Page, or Beth Page in the King James, and Beth Anya, or Bethany in the King James, by the Mount of Olives, he sent two Talmudim. And there are many people who say, think that, well, Talmudim means students. Actually, it means much more than students. It means actual followers of Yeshua, as translated in the King James as disciples. Verse 30, instructing them, go into the village ahead. On entering it, you will find a colt tied up that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks why you are untying it, tell him, Yahuwah needs it. Those who went off and found it just as he had told them, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, Because Yahuwah needs it. They brought it to Yeshua, and throwing their robes on the colt, they put Yeshua on it. And as he went along, people carpeted the roads with their clothing. And as he came near Jerusalem, where the road descends uh, from the Mount of Olives, the entire band of Talmudim, or disciples, uh, the word Talmudim, by the way, does come from a root meaning instructed. The entire band began to sing and praise Elohim at the top of their voices for all the powerful works they had seen. And we see this also in Revelation 14, beginning at verse 1. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing at Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I think that's a symbolic number, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. If you look at Revelation 7, it appears that Yah knows where the tribes are and that they're separate entities at the end of the age, according to Revelation 7. They're not all combined in one people called the Jews. Verse 2, I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of rushing waters and like the sound of feeling thunder. The sound I heard was like that harpist playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the, before the four living beings and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been ransomed from the world. Returning back to Luke chapter 19, we continue with verse 38. Blessed is the king who is coming in the name of Adonai. Shalom in heaven, glory in the highest places. Some of the Perushim, or Pharisees, separated ones, in the crowd said to him, Rabbi, reprimand your Talmudim. 
But he answered them, I tell you that if they keep quiet, the stones will shout. And then we read about the cleansing of the temple, beginning at verse 45 of Luke 19, symbolizing the lake of fire judgment. So you ever wonder why Yeshua cleansed the temple with a whip and drove out the sinners out of the temple? <laughs> that was all prophetic of the coming judgment. Luke 19.45, Then Yeshua entered the temple grounds and began driving out those doing business there, saying to them, the Tanakh, and Tanakh is, of course, an acronym for the Old Testament in its three parts, the, the Torah, or Law, Nevi'im, or Prophets, and Ketuvim, the other sacred writings. The Tanakh says, My house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made into a den of robbers. Every day he taught at the temple, the head Kohanim, or priest, the Torah teachers, and the leaders of the people tried to find a way of putting an end to him, putting an end to Yeshua. But they couldn't find any way of doing it, because all the people were hanging on to his every word. So, you could say, uh, in a conclusion, there needs to be a cleansing of our churches today. We can't literally go into a denominational church with a whip and tie them out, or certainly not a synagogue, that would be neat. <laughs> but you know, Yeshua, when he comes back, he's going to be cleansing the churches. And I just want to close with a mention of a news article that just came out on CBS News yesterday. Pope Francis, Catholic Pope Francis, kicked off an important meeting on the Roman Catholic Church's future with an LGBTQ bombshell says the biggest bombshell dropped earlier this week when Francis, that's the Pope, opened the door for the possibility of Catholic priests blessing same-sex hmm. unions. See, the churches are all getting on the worldly bandwagon. And the, uh, I won't read the whole article, but he goes on and says, Pope Francis said, we cannot be judges, only deny, reject, and exclude. Well, what does it say in the New Testament? Deny, reject, Yeshua and judges those outside the church. We are to judge those inside the church and drive out the wicked from among you. So, the Pope is wrong on that. You ought to learn the scriptures a little better. <laughs> we are to judge those who are sinning inside church is ecclesia. It's certainly not the way we read about in the scriptures. And in his opening homily Wednesday, that's this past Wednesday, for the synod, the Pope said that everyone, everyone, everyone must be allowed in. While church conservatives blasted Francis for appearing to dilute Catholic doctrine and so confusion. And then they go on to say, it is a very slim minority of Catholics who are opposed to same-sex unions. So says CBS News. A very small minority. The Catholic Church was the ones that said, we never change. They're the, supposedly the most conservative. But they're all getting on the, on the bandwagon. The sin bandwagon. <laughs> And so Yeshua is going to have a nice big job of cleansing the temple when he gets back. 
cleansing his temple, cleansing the churches. And the sinners, he's not going to mess with them. They're going to be thrown in the lake of fire, we're told. There will be a time of judgment. It's not going to be pretty. So many people today have looked forward to the second coming. Oh, I can't wait for the second coming. But, you know, the prophet said, Woe unto you the desire of the day of Yahuwah. For what end is it to you? The day of Yahuwah is darkness and not light unto them who are sinful. Now, it's light to us, of course. But to the vast majority uh, in and out of the church, the worldly church, that is, it is going to be a very dismal, dark time of judgment. And so we may or may not want to look forward to that time, even though we are among his chosen ones, his people, his physical and spiritual Israel, and heirs of the promises, and heirs of the coming kingdom. They'll be here upon the earth. A wonderful time. That will be once we get by That's the time of judgment. So I'll close with that. Are there any questions? turned away from the scripture but I am so confused about that scripture that speaks about um, oh the one that says from one new moon to the next and from one Sabbath to the next we'll be praising God but then the next verse talks about the wicked and the sinners somebody will be able to go out and see them burning because their worm will never die can you explain that a little bit more is that like literal or because my involvement yeah you have symbolism here in biblical times, Gehenna, uh, which is often, you know, equated, equated with hellfire, Gehenna was the garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem on, I think it was the southeast, if I'm not mistaken, side of Jerusalem. And because garbage kept being thrown in there, the fires never went out. And so it made an apt symbol or representation of Yah's judgment. And you know, the thing about Yah's fire is, you know, fire can be good or bad. Uh, this, this heat there really feels good to me. Mm -hmm. But you know, fire can be damaging. It can burn down houses, you know. Um, fire can be good or bad. Depends on which which side of the Torah you are. <laughs> and you read in Revelation, in, in three different chapters of Revelation, 4 and 15 and 20, it talks about the lake of fire. It talks about a sea of glass mingled with fire. And people are so trained to think of fire as being bad. But yet, if you look at Revelation, uh, 15, down around verse 4 or so, um, it says the saints uh, were around the sea of glass mingled with fire. And it's interesting to compare versions because some versions say they were beside, this is the NIV, they're beside the sea of glass mingled with fire. 
whereas the King James and others say they were on the sea of glass mail with fire. Well, which is right? Well, the King James is right because the Greek word there means upon or on. It doesn't mean beside. But you know, the translators put their theology in and they want to keep believers away from that fire, you know? They're going to take up hellfire. They're going to keep us away from the fire. But you know, we're told in Hebrews 12, 28, the last verse of Hebrews 12, for our Elohim is a consuming fire. But you know, Moses on Mount Sinai was not consumed. The believers are not going to consume. The fire is going to be warmth to us. We'll be standing on that sea of glass mingled with fire, but the wicked will be consumed. You know, so fire can be good or bad, but for me, and hopefully for all of you, it's not something, the fire of Elohim is not something that you will fear. It's something that you will welcome that you look forward to because if nothing else it will burn out the dross you know we're all imperfect people we're all imperfect in following his Torah um, and it says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 the fire will, will, will consume the dross the wood, the hay, the stubble but you shall be saved, yet so as by fire. That fire, that lake of fire is going to burn out the dross out of you so you can be pure enough to stand in the presence of the Holy One. In our present sinful mortal bodies, we're not, we're, we're not really ready to stand in His presence. Sin can't stand before His presence. I want that dross in my life now, burned out. I want it burned out in that lake of fire, whatever is remaining. And you know, that's what it comes down to. Is, uh, is the worm dying not? Well, it's that's talking about Gehenna. It, they all were, they all were aware of Gehenna, and the fire is not going out. Uh, and uh, it's a, a good. A, a good example, illustration of the coming of, uh, of, of uh, the Lake of Fire judgment. So, uh, I hope that answers your, your question. Any other questions? All right, okay. We'll close with that then. Thank you. Stay tuned as we set up for praise. I turned it off.